Lesson 11 for September 8 through to 14, ready for teaching on September 15. Arrest in Jerusalem. Sabbath afternoon, September 8. Before we start, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, it's fascinating following the story of Paul and the things that happened when he preached, but also the things that happened to him. And as we go through our lives, we know that uh, we show our Christianity on our sleeve, but things also happen to us as well. And we know that from the story of Paul, uh, we can gain insight into how you are there to care for us. We thank you that Jesus came and died, that each of us could have eternal life. But we also thank you that your word shows us who you are. Bless us now as we read your word this week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our memory text this week is Acts chapter 23 and verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Let's read that again. Acts 23 and verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage, as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Soon after Paul's first missionary journey, it became clear that there was a fundamental disagreement in the church on how the Gentiles were to be admitted into the faith. Acts 15 Verse 1 to 5 tells us this. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you were circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they travelled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders, to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers, who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, stood up and said, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. Perhaps sensing a growing conflict, Paul conceived a plan to promote unity in the church. Because of the council, he was asked to remember the poor. In Galatians 2 verse 10, All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along. He decided to invite the Gentile churches to provide financial aid to the brethren in Judea, the collection for the saints as recorded in 1 Corinthians 16 verse 1, perhaps hoping that it could help build bridges between the two groups. This could explain his determination to go to Jerusalem at the end of his third journey, despite the risks. On one hand, he had a genuine love for his fellow Jews, as we read in Romans 9, verses 1 through to 5, I speak the truth in Christ, I am not lying, my conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Israel for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption to sonship, theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised." 
Amen. On the other, he longed for a united church. As we read in Galatians 3 verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And Galatians 5 verse 6, for in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith, expressing itself through love. As Jews and Gentiles were equally saved through faith, not through the works of the law, any social alienation between them, based on the ceremonial requirements of the law, was against the inclusive nature of the gospel. Romans 3 verses 28 to 30 reads, For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too, since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. And Ephesians chapter 2 verses 11 to 22. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people, and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. Let's follow Paul as he enters this new phase of his life and mission. Sunday, September 9, Meeting the Jerusalem Leaders When Paul arrived in Jerusalem, he warmly was received by believers associated with Manasson, with whom he was to stay, as it says in Acts 21, verses 16 and 17. Some of the disciples from Caesarea accompanied us and brought us to the home of Manasson, where we were to stay. He was a man from Cyprus and one of the early disciples. When we arrived at Jerusalem, the brothers and sisters received us warmly. 
In Acts 21.18-22, James and the Jerusalem elders expressed their concerns about Paul's reputation among local Jewish believers zealous of the Mosaic law. Acts 21, beginning at verse 18. The next day, Paul and the rest of them went to see James, and all the elders were present. Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. When they heard this, they praised God. Then they said to Paul, You see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed, and all of them are zealous for the law? They have been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. What shall we do? They will certainly hear that you have come. They had been informed that he was teaching the Jewish converts who lived abroad to forsake Moses, telling them, as it said in verse 21, not to circumcise their children or observe the customs. This, of course, was not really true. What Paul did teach was that, in terms of salvation, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision meant anything, as both Jews and Gentiles were equally saved by faith in Jesus, as we read in Romans 2, verse 28 and 29. A person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God, and also in Galatians 5, 6, for in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. And Colossians 3, verse 11, Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. This is different from explicitly encouraging Jews to disregard the law and its requirements. Obedience is not, of course, in itself a synonym for legalism, though it could deliberately be twisted to mean just that. Question. Read Acts chapter 21, verses 23 to 26. How was Paul to demonstrate he still was a faithful Jew? So do what we tell you. There are four men with us who have made a vow. Take these men, join in their purification rites, and pay their expenses, so that they can have their heads shaved. Then everyone will know there is no truth in these reports about you, but that you yourself are living in obedience to the law. As for the Gentile believers, we have written to them our decision that they should abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. The next day, Paul took the men and purified himself along with them. Then he went to the temple to give notice of the date when the days of purification would end and the offering would be made for each of them. Paul was advised to be politically correct. He should show the falsity of the rumours about him by doing something very Jewish, sponsor the Nazarite vow of some Jewish believers. This vow was a special act of piety through which a Jew could consecrate himself to God. Unfortunately, Paul yielded. Heroes, including the Bible ones, have their flaws, as we can see in the lives of Abraham, Moses, Peter, and several others. 
it could be argued that Paul was just following his principle of behaving like a Jew when dealing with Jews, as he wrote in 1 Corinthians nine nineteen to 23 Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone, to win as many as possible. To the Jews I became like a Jew, to win the Jews. To those under the law I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some." I do all this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessing. Or that he himself is reported to have taken a vow not long before, though the precise nature of this vow is not clear. Acts 18 verse 18, Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time. Then he left the brothers and sisters and sailed to Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. Before he sailed, he had his hair cut off at Chentre because of a vow he had taken. This time, however, it was a compromise, as it signified his endorsement of the legalistic motives behind the recommendation. The implication of such an attitude was exactly the one the Apostle vigorously tried to oppose, that there are two Gospels, one for Gentiles, of salvation by faith, and another for Jews, of salvation by works. Ellen White writes in the Acts of the Apostles, page 405, Paul was not authorised of God to concede as much as they asked. And so to finish today, in our attempts to be relevant, how can we be careful not to make a similar kind of error? Monday, September 10, Riot in the Temple Having accepted the church's leader's suggestion, Paul would need to undergo a seven-day ritual purification to assist the completion of the men's vow. Um, Just like in Numbers 19, verses 11 to 13, whoever touches a human corpse will be unclean for seven days. They must purify themselves with the water on the third day and on the seventh day. Then they will be clean. But if they do not purify themselves on the third and seventh day, they will not be clean. If they fail to purify themselves after touching a human corpse, they defile the Lord's tabernacle. They must be cut off from Israel, because the water of cleansing has not been sprinkled on them. They are unclean, their uncleanness remains on them. At the same time, Jewish tradition stipulated that any person coming from Gentile lands would be unclean and so unable to enter the temple. This is why Paul had to purify himself before going to the priests to give notice of his purification process related to the Nazarenes, as it said in Acts 21.26. The next day, Paul took the men and purified himself along with them. Then he went to the temple to give notice of the date when the days of purification would end and the offering would be made for each of them. 
Question. Read Acts chapter 21, verses 27 to 36. What happened to Paul at the end of his seven-day period of purification? Beginning at verse 27 of Acts 21, when the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. They stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, Fellow Israelites, help us! This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people and our law and this place. And besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place. They had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian in the city with Paul and assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple. The whole city was aroused and the people came running from all directions. Seizing Paul, they dragged him from the temple and immediately the gates were shut. While they were trying to kill him, news reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. He at once took some officers and soldiers and ran down to the crowd. When the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. The commander came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. Then he asked who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd shouted one thing and some another. And since the commander could not get at the truth because of the uproar, he ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. When Paul reached the steps, the violence of the mob was so great he had to be carried by the soldiers. The crowd that followed kept shouting, Get rid of him! A riot ensued, caused by those who stirred up the crowd against Paul, accusing him of attacking the most sacred symbols of Jewish religion, in particular of having desecrated the temple. As one of Paul's travel companions was a Gentile believer from Ephesus named Trophimus, we saw that in verse 21, they thought the apostle had introduced him into the temple's inner court, where only Jews could enter. If the accusation were legitimate, Paul would be guilty of a most serious offence. Along the wall that separated the outer from the inner court, there were signs in Greek and Latin warning Gentile visitors not to enter further in. Otherwise, they would be personally responsible for their ensuing death. Acts of the Apostles, page 407, I read, By the Jewish law, it was a crime punishable with death for an uncircumcised person to enter the inner courts of the sacred edifice. Paul had been seen in the city in company with Trophimus, an Ephesian, and it was conjectured that he had brought him into the temple. This he had not done, and, being himself a Jew, his act in entering the temple was no violation of the law. But though the charge was wholly false, it served to arouse the popular prejudice. As the cry was taken up and borne through the temple courts, the throngs gathered there were thrown into wild excitement. End of quote. When the news of the riot reached a Roman fortress, the Roman commander, Claudius Lysias, came with troops and rescued Paul before the crowd could kill him. As we read in Acts 23:26, Claudius Lysias, to His Excellency Governor Felix, greetings. As the target of the attacks, Paul was arrested and bound with chains while the commander tried to inquire about what was going on. At the hysteric shouting of the crowd, he ordered the apostle to be taken to the fortress. And so to finish today, rumours, false ones at that, helped start this riot. Why must we be so careful with the kinds of rumours we listen to, or even worse, spread? 
Tuesday, September 11. Before the crowd. Acts chapter 21, verses 37 to 40, tells us what happened next. Beginning at verse 37 in Acts 21, as the soldiers were about to take Paul into the barracks, he asked the commander, May I say something to you? Do you speak Greek? he replied. Aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt and led 4,000 terrorists out into the wilderness some time ago? Paul answered, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no ordinary city. Please let me speak to the people. After receiving the commander's permission, Paul stood on the steps and motioned to the crowd. When they were all silent, he said to them in Aramaic, and we'll have to wait for that till later. As Paul was taken into the Roman fortress for interrogation, he asked the commander for permission to address the people, who were still frantically clamouring for his death. As he addressed the commander in the Greek language, the latter thought Paul might have been a certain Jew from Egypt who had for some three years before initiated a revolt in Jerusalem against Roman occupation. The revolt, however, was put down by the Roman forces. Many of his followers were either killed or arrested, while the Egyptian escaped. After saying that he was from Tarsus, not from Egypt, Paul was granted permission to speak. In his speech, he did not offer a detailed response to the accusations railed against him, but told them the story of his conversion highlighting his devotion to Judaism, to the point of having persecuted believers in Jesus. When confronted with a number of revelations from the Lord, he had no choice but to follow them. This explained the complete turnaround in his life and his call to preach to the Gentiles. Rather than get into a theological discussion, Paul recounted to them his own experience and why he was doing what he did. Question. Read Acts chapter 22, verses 22 to 29. How did the mob react to Paul's statement that he was an apostle to the Gentiles? Acts 22, beginning at verse 22. The crowd listened to Paul until he said this. Then they raised their voices and shouted, Rid the earth of him, he's not fit to live. As they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the commander ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. He directed that he be flogged and interrogated in order to find out why the people were shouting at him like this. As they stretched him out to flog him, Paul said to the centurion standing there, Is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't even been found guilty? When the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and reported it. What are you going to do? he asked. This man is a Roman citizen. The commander went to Paul and asked, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Yes, I am, he answered. Then the commander said, I had to pay a lot of money for my citizenship. But I was born a citizen, Paul replied. Those who were about to interrogate him withdrew immediately. The commander himself was alarmed when he realized that he had put Paul, a Roman citizen, in chains. The decision to let Paul speak did not work out well. By referring to his commitment to the Gentiles, Paul seemed to be confirming the truth of the charges against him. And the crowd got riled up again. 
The Roman commander may not have understood everything, Paul said, so he decided to have him examined by flogging. Yet, besides being a pure-blood Jew, as we read in Philippians 3.5, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, Paul also had Roman citizenship, and when he mentioned this, the commander had to back down. As a Roman citizen, Paul could not be subject to that kind of torture. And so to finish today, read Paul's speech. What evidence do you see that besides defending himself, Paul was also preaching to his fellow Jews? Why would he tell his conversion story? What is it about conversion stories that can have so much power? And we read his speech in Acts 22, beginning at verse 1. Brothers and fathers, listen now to my defence. When they heard him speak to them in Aramaic, they became very quiet. Then Paul said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city. I studied under Gamaliel and was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. I was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. I persecuted the followers on this way to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison, as the high priest and all the council can themselves testify. I even obtained letters from them to their associates in Damascus and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. About noon, as I came near Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I asked. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting, he replied. My companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. What shall I do, Lord? I asked. Get up the Lord said, and go into Damascus. There you will be told all that you have been assigned to do. My companions led me by the hand into Damascus, because the brilliance of the light had blinded me. A man named Ananias came to see me. He was a devout observer of the law and highly respected by all the Jews living there. He stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very moment I was able to see him. Then he said, The God of our ancestors has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear words from his mouth. You will be his witness to all people of what you have seen and heard. And now, what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, and wash your sins away, calling on his name. When I returned to Jerusalem and was praying at the temple, I fell into a trance, and I saw the Lord speaking to me. Quick, he said, leave Jerusalem immediately, because the people here will not accept your testimony about me. Lord, I replied, these people know that I went from one synagogue to another to imprison and beat those who believe in you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I stood there, giving my approval and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Then the Lord said to me, go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles.
Wednesday, September 12, before the Sanhedrin. When the Roman commander realised that Paul did not represent any threat to the empire, that is, that the issue involved internal disputes of the Jews, he asked the Sanhedrin to take up the case. We read that in Acts 22, verse 30. The commander wanted to find out exactly why Paul was being accused by the Jews, so the next day he released him and ordered the chief priests and all the members of the Sanhedrin to assemble. Then he brought Paul and had him stand before them. And Acts 23, verse 29. I found that the accusation had to do with questions about their law, but there was no charge against him that deserved death or imprisonment. Question, read Acts 23, verses 1 through to 5. How did Paul start his defence before the Sanhedrin? Acts 23, beginning at verse 1, Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. At this, the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. Those who were standing near Paul said, How dare you insult God's high priest? Paul replied, Brothers, I did not realize that he was the high priest, for it is written, Do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. Paul's introductory statement was met with a slap on the mouth, perhaps because, as a prisoner, his reference to God sounded blasphemous. His impulsive reaction gives us a glimpse of his temperament. By calling the high priest a whitewashed wall, in verse 3, he could be echoing Jesus' condemnation of the Pharisees' hypocrisy in Matthew 23 and verse 27. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. Yet, Since Paul did not really know he was addressing the high priest, the possibility that he had bad eyesight is not to be entirely ruled out. Question. Read Acts chapter 23, verses 6 through to 10. How did Paul ingeniously try to disrupt the proceedings? Chapter 23, beginning at verse 6. Then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and the others Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, My brothers, I am a Pharisee, descended from Pharisees. I stand on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. The Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, and that there are neither angels nor spirits. But the Pharisees believe all these things. There was a great uproar, and some of the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, stood up and argued vigorously. We find nothing wrong with this man, they said. What if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? The dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. He ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. The Sanhedrin were composed of both Sadducees and Pharisees, who were opposed to each other on a number of issues, doctrine being one of them. The Sadducees, for example, whose scriptural canon included only the first five books of Moses, the Pentateuch, did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. 
Matthew chapter 22 verses 23 to 32 reads, That same day the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for him. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first one married and died, and since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. The same thing happened to the second and third brother right on down to the seventh. Finally, the woman died. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven, since all of them were married to her? Jesus replied, You are in error because you do not know the Scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. But about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Paul's statement in chapter 23, verse 6, however, was more than a clever tactic to distract Sanhedrin. Since his encounter with the resurrected Jesus on the Damascus Road lay at the foundation of his conversion and apostolic ministry, belief in the resurrection was the real issue for which he was being charged. Acts twenty four twenty and 21 Or those who are here should state what crime they found in me when I stood before the Sanhedrin. Unless it was this one thing I shouted as I stood in their presence, it is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you today. And Acts chapter 26, verses 6 to 8. And now it is because of my hope in what God has promised our ancestors that I am on trial today. This is the promise our twelve tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. King Agrippa, it is because of this hope that these Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? Nothing else could explain how he had changed from his former zeal to become what he was now. If Jesus had not been raised from the dead, then his ministry was pointless, and he knew it too, as he wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, beginning at verse 14, And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. That night, as Paul was in the fortress, the Lord appeared to him with this encouragement. Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness in Rome. That was Acts 23, verse 11. Given the circumstances, such a promise might have been particularly meaningful to Paul. His long-cherished wish to preach in Rome would still come to pass. And we read about his wish to preach in Rome in Acts 19.21. After all this had happened, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia and Achaia. 
after I have been there, he said, I must visit Rome also. And Romans 1 verses 13 to 15. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I planned many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among the other Gentiles. I am obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. And Romans 15 verses 22 to 29. This is why I have often been hindered from coming to you. But now that there is no more place for me to work in these regions, and since I have been longing for many years to visit you, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I hope to see you while passing through and to have you assist me on my journey there after I have enjoyed your company for a while. Now, however, I am on my way to Jerusalem in the service of the Lord's people there. For Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to have a contribution for the poor among the Lord's people in Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessings, they owe it to the Jews to share with them their material blessings. So, after I have completed this task and have made sure that they have received this contribution, I will go to Spain and visit you on the way. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the full measure of the blessing of Christ. Thursday, September 13, transfer to Caesarea. Upset with the fact that they had not yet gotten rid of Paul by legal means, a group decided to orchestrate a plan through which they would ambush and kill him on their own. Question. Read Acts 23, verses 12 to 17. What was their plan, and how is it thwarted? What does this teach us about how passionate people can be for causes that are wrong? Acts 23, beginning at verse 12. The next morning some Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. More than forty men were involved in this plot. They went to the chief priests and the elders and said, We have taken a solemn oath not to eat anything until we have killed Paul. Now then, you and the Sanhedrin petition the commander to bring him before you on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about his case. We are ready to kill him before he gets there. But when the son of Paul's sister heard of this plot, he went into the barracks and told Paul. Then Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the commander. He has something to tell him. That more than forty Jews conspired together against Paul and bound themselves with an oath reveals how much hatred the apostle had aroused in Jerusalem. Luke does not give us the identity of these men, but they were extremists, willing to do whatever it took to protect the Jewish faith from its alleged traitors and enemies. Such a level of religious fanaticism, coupled with a revolutionary and nationalistic fervour, was not uncommon in first-century Judea and its environs. In some providential way, however, the news about the plot reached the ears of Paul's nephew. 
It is somewhat disappointing that we know almost nothing about Paul's family, but apparently he and his sister had been brought up in Jerusalem. Acts 22, verse 3, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city. I studied under Gamaliel and was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. I was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. Where she married and had at least one son. Anyway, Paul's nephew, the diminutive Nianeskos, and the fact that he was taken by the hand imply he was still a teenager and was able to visit him in the fortress and tell his story. More about Nianeskos in Acts 23, verse 18 to 22. So he took him to the commander. The centurion said, Paul the prisoner sent for me and asked me to bring this young man to you because he has something to tell you. The commander took the young man by the hand, drew him aside and asked, What is it you want to tell me? He said, Some Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul before the Sanhedrin tomorrow on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about him. Don't give it to them because more than forty of them are waiting in ambush for him. They have taken an oath not to eat or drink until they have killed him. They are ready now, waiting for your consent to their request. The commander dismissed the young man with this warning. Don't tell anyone that you have reported this to me. Question. Read Acts 23, verses 26 to 30. What message did Commander Lysias send Governor Felix about Paul? Acts 23, beginning at verse 26. Claudius Lysias to His Excellency Governor Felix. Greetings. This man was seized by the Jews, and they were about to kill him. But I came with my troops and rescued him, for I had learned that he is a Roman citizen. I wanted to know why they were accusing him, so I brought him to their Sanhedrin. I found that the accusation had to do with questions about their law, but there was no charge against him that deserved death or imprisonment. When I was informed of a plot to be carried out against the man, I sent him to you at once. I also ordered his accusers to present to you their case against him. The letter provided Felix with a fair report of the situation. In addition, it shows how Paul was benefited by his Roman citizenship. The Roman law fully protected its citizens, who had the right, for example, to have a legal trial, in which they could appear before the court and defend themselves. We read that in Acts 25.16. I told them that it is not the Roman custom to hand over anyone before they have faced their accusers and have had an opportunity to defend themselves against the charges, and the right to appeal to the emperor in case of an unfair trial. Acts 25, verses 10 and 11, Paul answered, I am now standing before Caesar's court, where I ought to be tried. I have not done any wrong to the Jews, as you yourself know very well. If, however, I am guilty of doing anything deserving death, I do not refuse to die. But if the charges brought against me by these Jews are not true, no one has the right to hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. Irrespective of Felix's reputation, he treated Paul in the proper legal manner. After a preliminary interrogation, he ordered him to be kept under guard until the accusers arrived. And so to finish today, think about God's providence in Paul's life. How often have you humbly acknowledged God's providence in your own life, despite the trials and suffering you might have gone through? 
Friday, September 14. On this occasion, Ellen White writes in the Acts of the Apostles, page 399 and 340, Paul and his companions formally presented to the leaders of the work at Jerusalem the contributions forwarded by the Gentile churches for the support of the poor among their Jewish brethren. These freewill offerings betokened the loyalty of the Gentile converts to the organized work of God throughout the world, and should have been received by all with grateful acknowledgement. Yet it was apparent to Paul and his companions companions, that even among those before whom they now stood were some who were unable to appreciate the spirit of brotherly love that had prompted the gifts. And the same author, same book, page 417 and 418. Had the leaders in the church fully surrendered their feeling of bitterness toward the apostle and accepted him as one specially called of God to bear the gospel to the Gentiles, the Lord would have spared him to them." God had not ordained that Paul's labours should so soon end, but he did not work a miracle to counteract the train of circumstances to which the course of the leaders in the church at Jerusalem had given rise. The same spirit is still leading to the same results. A neglect to appreciate and improve the provisions of divine grace has deprived the church of many a blessing. How often would the Lord have prolonged the work of some faithful minister had his labours been appreciated? But if the church permits the enemy of souls to pervert the understanding, so that they misrepresent and misinterpret the words and acts of the servant of Christ, if they allow themselves to stand in his way and hinder his usefulness, the Lord sometimes removes from them the blessing which he gave. After the hands are folded upon the pulseless breast, when the voice of warning and encouragement is silent, then the obdurate may be aroused to see and prize the blessings they had cast from them. Their death may accomplish that which their life has failed to do. End of quote. And that brings us to our three discussion questions for this week. 1. By going to Jerusalem, despite knowing he would not be welcome, Paul put the interests of the church above his own personal interests. To what extent should we follow his example? 2. What can we learn from Paul's compromise in Jerusalem? How can we be politically correct without surrendering the principles we live by? Or can we? 3. Church unity is always so important. How can we learn to work together, unified, even when we have different views on things? Inside Story our mission story this week is again by Andrew McChesney from Adventist Mission and it's titled Claiming 100 Baptisms. Kiong Kwon had 20 church members when he planted his first church in South Korea and he was delighted to see a young stranger show up for the first Sabbath service. Why did you come to this small church? Kwon asked. I just don't have any luck, the guest replied, but someone told me that if I went to a new church it would bring me luck. Quan offered Bible studies and the young man was baptized. But Quan wanted even more members. One day he prayed from morning to evening, Please give me people, give me souls to fill this church. The next day a neighbor stopped Quan. 
Yesterday I felt like going to church, she said. Please take me to your church. The day after that, Quan got a phone call. My sister is an Adventist who has wanted me to go to church for ten years, but I have never gone, the caller said. But now I feel like going. Quan studied the Bible with both women, and both were baptised. More than forty people were baptised that first year. A year later, when the ninety-eighth person was baptised, Quan prayed for one hundred baptisms. He then remembered a woman whom he hadn't seen in three years. He found her running a children's art school, and he visited her with flowers. "'You should be that one hundredth person to be baptised at my church,' he told her. When the woman agreed, Keong informed her that she needed Bible studies first, and to expect him at her home the next evening. "'Make sure your husband is there too,' he said." After Kwan left, the woman called her husband a devout Buddhist and a business owner who recently had decided to learn English. He had purchased several English-language books, including a Bible, and had been struggling to read the Bible at his office. In desperation, he prayed, "'If you are the real God, send someone to teach me the Bible.' At that moment, his wife called and announced, "'Elder Kwan will come to our house tomorrow to teach us the Bible.' Her husband was shocked beyond words, Quan said. The next day, Quan found the married couple and their adult children eagerly waiting to study the Bible. The whole family was baptised. And this, once again, a picture of Keong Quan, aged 56, who's planted three churches in South Korea. Part of this quarter's 13th Sabbath offering will help plant the first Adventist church in Sejong, South Korea. Read more about Quan last week and again next week. Your reader for this week's Adult Sabbath School Bible Study Guide has been Dr. Percy Harold. It has been produced in the studios of Christian Services for the Blind, distributed under the auspices of the Sabbath School Department by HopeChannel.com.